Good morning, everyone. We're in this series called A Christmas High, and, and I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page of what we're trying to accomplish throughout this series. Um, we, uh, like in the world we live in, there are times where we want to just escape from certain realities. Uh, there are times, uh, for instance, like uh, right around Christmas, uh, when, you know, it's like we may not have the money to buy the gifts that, we, that we're going to purchase, but it's just like, you know what, let me just, let's just take a break from our financial situation and let's just focus on being happy. Or maybe our diets where we say, you know what, I'm going to take a break from my diet because I really want to indulge and just have a good time. We'll get back to that after the New Year's and we'll even make a good old resolution on it, right? And we know how well those hold. So anyhow, um, you know, we're, so, so there's times in life where we want to escape. We want to escape looking at the realities. We want to escape from, you know, I've just been diagnosed with this sickness. I've just heard this bad news. I've just got this thrown in my lap this week. I just, you know what? I just, I don't want to think about that stuff. I just want to get away. I want to have, uh, you know, escape reality for a little while. And I just want to spend some time focusing on something that's pleasant and not stinking, depressing and discouraging all the time. You ever feel that way? I, you know, I think every single one of us could say, you know what, I, I do. I do and I have and I may be in it right now. And so this whole series, that's what we're talking about. However, when we look at that prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7, we read that in the midst of all of that garbage and junk, God provides this sense of hope, this sense of encouragement, this sense of, of, of uh, a message of, of, of a brighter future that says things can be different and things are going to be different. And so I hope that you really are grabbing a hold. I hope that uh, you, you really have latched on to this message. I couldn't think of a better time uh, to gather around with some corporate prayer uh, than in this series right now as we talk about this. Uh, some of you are just, just the things that we described. Uh, I know that uh, the Lehman family, not to put Lynette on the spot, but I did ask your husband, Lynette, so I'm in the clear. Um, Lynette got some bad news a couple of weeks ago of breast cancer. And so, is that what we want to spend time thinking about through this season? And some of you, some others of you, have, have gotten news of physical stuff, you know, where it just out of the clear blue, you're, you got diagnosed with something, and it's like, here we go, what do I do with this? Some of you are maybe experiencing some financial things. I know back with the physical thing, we've, um, Stacey McMullen, not to put you guys on the, on, in the spotlight either, but I know she's dealing with some, some severe back issues with a, with a crushed disc or something of that nature. Things that it's like, I, I, you know, we don't want to deal with this right now. And so, uh, uh, Car- uh, Carol Stutzman, uh, coming home from the Catherine Cobb dinner, uh, got a gallstone, uh, had to have her gallstone removed. She went to the emergency room that night, so I don't know if it was the meatloaf or uh, what Eric Meyer was looking at. I'm just kidding, but she did experience uh, a gallstone or a gallbladder attack, and she went in the emergency room. She is recovering. But there's others of you that are experiencing things like that, like that right now, news that you just got dropped in your lap. I couldn't think of a better time to come together and to pray. And so I'm going to ask you if you would like to. You don't have to. I'm not guilt-tripping you into this. I'm simply asking, I want to provide the opportunity for you. If you would like to come forward and just kneel down, sit, whatever you want to do, and I'm going to lead us into a word of prayer. Um, I'm, I want you to just feel free to do that right now, if you would. Um, whatever may be on your heart, whether it's something heavy, whether it be something that uh, is coming up in your life, whether it be something you're just trying to manage through or deal with, whatever it is, if you want to spend some time praying, I would like, just uh, feel free to come forward. Um, if you want to sit in your pew, that's fine too, but uh, I want to give you that opportunity to come and as we spend a few moments in prayer.
Father, as we gather around here this morning and um, even sitting in the pews, God, we just come together in one heart. And, uh, you know, what we've been talking about is very real for some of us. Where we're experiencing some physical things that uh, we didn't anticipate, something that we didn't choose to happen to us, but um, it did. Some of us have been dealing with the diagnosis of cancer for a while. Some of us have just received that diagnosis. Some of us, God may be dealing with financial situations, the economy. Some of us may be dealing with some news that just dropped in our laps uh, this past week or whatever about family or God, whatever it is. The thing of it is that you know. You know every little detail of our lives, every little intricacy that, that, that makes us up. That God, you know where we're struggling. You know where we're losing heart, where, we're, where we feel like we're losing the battle. God, you know the pain that we're carrying, the sorrow that we may have, the doubt, the anger. God, you know all of that. And I pray for each person here today, wherever they are, wherever you find them, God, I pray that they would allow you to encounter them in a very intimate way. I pray, God, that this message might be so real upon their hearts today that they might find hope. They might find encouragement that comes from following you. God, that even though the world around them, the outside world, as we're going to discuss, the outside may look like it's decaying, may look like it's completely out of control, but God, we know that you are in control. God, we also want to lift up situations like what happened in Connecticut where our hearts the, uh, across the world go out for, for these families. And, and, and again, we ask the question, why? And we keep asking and it's like we can't get an answer. We can't wrap our brains around it. And God, some of us may get angry with you for allowing something like that to happen. And, but God, we know that, 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 that even though it seemingly looks like evil is winning, we know... And trust in you and know that it's not. And that one day things will be set straight. And so it's with that thought that we come to you and and we place our faith and hope in you. And again, I just pray for these individuals. I pray that you will meet them wherever they are on their spiritual journey, on their path right now. For some, you need to grab a hold and put them on dry ground, up on the rock once again. For others, they need incredible amounts of encouragement and strength. They need a sense, for some, they need a sense of peace. Consolation that can only come from you. Where, whatever it is, God, I, we just, I just ask that you would meet them where they are, that we would experience your presence right now in a very powerful way. And I pray that you would teach us, God, that you would, as we look at the word, that it would just fill our hearts. God, that we would be able to understand it and it would be very real to us today. And we leave all this and commit all this in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn with me to um, Isaiah chapter 9, verses, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, it's a passage of scripture we read about, or we read so often at Christmas time, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, if you uh, did not bring a Bible, grab the one out of the back of the pew in front of you if you do not have something in your hands to follow along, but uh, just familiarize yourself with the word and find uh, the hope that comes from this passage of Scripture. 
Uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7, God uses the prophet Isaiah to, to, uh, to pin out these words, and it says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. When we read this passage of Scripture... And we kind of, t- and we look, at the, and we actually, when we study the Bible and we see how the Bible came about, we read that many of these passages of scriptures at one time were passed down orally. This was an oral culture. It was, uh, these story, a lot of these stories, a lot of these, uh, uh, passages of scripture and things like that, uh, in the Old Testament were, were given, uh, you know, just transmitted by, by, um, by, by people, uh, by telling, by the telling of the stories. Uh, our culture would look at this, and for some, it breeds skepticism because we would say, uh, "There's no way that the integrity of this of the Bible could hold true being passed down orally." Because we all know what happens when we try to communicate something to one person and take it to two or three others, it ends up coming out this jargled mess. A lot of times here at church, we'll get something back where uh, someone took a, a you know just a simple message and it went through a few different people, and you're like. Where in the world did they get that at? You know what I'm saying? But but that's the reality of the world we live in. And, and, and so some would say, well, when I look at the Bible, I'm not so sure it's true. I'm not so sure it's inerrant. I'm not so, I'm not so uh, sure that it's, you know, infallible and all these other things. I don't know if I can really buy that. But in this particular time, uh, th- this is how, this is how things were passed down by, by stories. Uh, and, and, and I don't know about you, but I love stories. My family likes stories. I grew up, when I go home for Christmas, uh, here in a couple weeks, I'll go home and, and I'll spend time with my aunts and uncles and, and, it, and inevitably we'll be sitting around eating dinner at some point and be like, hey, Hey, can you share that story again? Can you, can you, can you tell them about that story about when you guys did this and you got, you know, this all happened, you know? And we sit and we enjoy that. We laugh, you know, and it's like, it's really cool. It's a fun time. And so uh, I've noticed how my kids are getting into it too. We'll be sitting around the table eating, uh, eating dinner or something. They'll be like, Hey, mommy, will you tell us the story of how you and daddy met? Or will you tell us, you know, when you first kissed? Ew, that's gross, you know? And all this other things. But, but we like stories. In the Hebrew Jewish culture, that's, they centered around stories. This is how things got passed down. God instructing them to pass things down, uh, orally stories. And, and so God would use different things. He would tell them to tell stories. In this passage of scripture, God is using, uh, if you caught on to it, there was a time, I think it's in verse four, I believe, 
It said, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, he's referring to an event. And so as you read that, it's like, hey, there's a story within a context, within a story here. And so today I want to take a look at Midian's defeat because it's the context that when, when we look at it again, this passage of scripture on the backdrop of Midian's defeat, it starts popping. It starts coming alive. But, but God's saying, don't forget to tell the stories. Don't forget the things that's happened. In fact, oftentimes when God would show up in someone's life, they would create a monument. And, and, and the reason why they would create a monument or a statue or whatever is that when someone, if they would walk up on it, they would say, hey, what is that? Where did this come from? And they would say, well, let me tell you about what happened. Let me tell you about when it came time for us, to, after we spent 40 years in the wilderness, uh, and it, there came a time where we were getting ready to cross over into the land. And God parted the water. And we walked through on dry ground. That's what we, that we erected this monument so that we remember that. Let me tell you about this monument over here because this is where I met God. This is where I physically wrestled with an angel. And he touched me. And I couldn't walk straight again. I still have this, this evidence in my physical leg that I can't, I can't, you know, and so we have these, we have these different monuments when God said, build a monument, build a monument, build a monument. Why? So that you can tell the next generation. So that you can tell your kids. So that you can tell people what that means. How I showed up. How I delivered you. Feasts. Feasts back in the, uh, to celebrate feasts. They had all kinds of these feasts and festivals that they celebrated. And they had meaning. They had rich context. They had this rich meaning that every time they would, they would take part of a feast. Like for instance one that would be familiar to us around Easter would be the Passover. Well as they celebrate that you're constantly reminded We do communion based upon that. It's symbolism to say, this is what Jesus did for us. He died for us. He shed His blood on the cross. He broke His body for us. And because of that, we can have a relationship with God once again. And so there was these feasts and festivals. He instructed them to observe rituals. To rely on symbols. And all these other things. Why? To remind them of who He was and what He did. And to teach their children that. And so we have this culture that's centered around these things in stories. And God instructs Isaiah to pin these words. And as Isaiah is pinning these words of, of, of chapter 9, 1 through 7, he, inside of that, he says, just like Midian's defeat. Well, what does that mean? Well, when we take a look at Midian's defeat, it takes us back to that time of Gideon. And it takes us back to Judges, where in Judges there was a time where every so many years it seemed like the nation, it not seemed, they did, they were in this cycle going downward, this spiral going downward. In Judges 6, 1 through 6, we, we read this, we read this phrase over and over throughout the book, and it says this, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. For, for like seven different times, seven different periods in the life of Israel during this time of the judges, they would get themselves caught up in things that was not pleasing to God. They would reject God. They would begin to rebel against God. And so what would happen is God would say, okay, listen, if you don't listen up, this is what's going to happen. Well, they wouldn't pull themselves out. And so what would happen is God would raise up another nation to come in and oppress them. And so then they would live in this state of oppression for a while. Then they would cry back out to God to say, God, come save us. God would raise up a judge. God would raise up a deliverer. We read about this, and in this context, it talks about the Midianites, which was Gideon. And, and so in this context, they were, you've heard, probably heard this story, but in this particular situation, they were down in one of these spirals, and God says, okay, 
If that's the way you want it, this is the way it's going to be. And so uh, he raised up the nation of the Midians, and they came in and literally oppressed them in an extremely powerful, negative, unpleasant way. And the Israelites, to the point to where the Israelites prepared shelters and things like that in mountain clefts, clefts and caves and strongholds. They were scared to death of the Midianites. Whenever the Israelites would plant crops, the Midianites would come in and literally destroy everything. During harvest time, they would come in and just, just lay waste to everything. They would destroy their cattle, their, their uh, sheep, their donkeys, whatever it is that they had, they would literally lay waste to. They were extremely ruthless to the Israelites during this time. And it was impossible to count the Midianites, because the Bible says that they were as, they, they looked like a swarm of locusts. They were everywhere. They were camped everywhere. And so, they're living, the Israelites are living in this time of oppression. They finally come to their senses and they cry out to God. And they say, God, you gotta help us. You need to deliver us. You need to help us. And so, they literally could do nothing, to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to get themselves out of this situation. So they cry out to God. God goes to a guy by the name of Gideon. We find Gideon in the bottom of a wine press, threshing wheat. He was in the bottom of a wine, uh, wine press because he didn't want to be seen by the Midianites or they would kill him or kill his harvest or whatever he had, what little he had to feed his family. But God comes to Gideon and he looks at Gideon and he says, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, whoa, you got the wrong guy here. In fact, in Judges 6, 14 and 15, he's, Gideon says this, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Doesn't that sound very familiar? Throughout the Bible, God says, I've got a purpose. I'm up to something. I'm going to do something great. I'm going to do something very significant here, and I want you to be a part of this. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa. Time out there. Time out. You got the wrong guy. You got the wrong guy. I stutter. Or I'm the weakest in my clan. Or you name it. I mean, we do it today too, don't we? God wants to come in our life. God wants to make some changes. God wants to use us in a very significant way to bring Himself glory. And we break out the list of why this isn't going to work. Gideon said the same thing. I'm the weakest. You gotta be, you're confusing me with someone else. Here's the issue. God really knew that Gideon was a nobody and that's what he liked about the whole situation, because he was going to show something, uh, he was going to do something that would bring himself glory, and no one could look at Gideon and say, well, pff, yeah, okay, Gideon made that happen. There's no way Gideon could. It wasn't based on his status and prestige, but on God's grace. So we have this whole story where Gideon finally concedes to it, and he's going to deliver the Israelites from the Midianites. And so he comes, you've heard the story, and he has this big army. He calls out, and all the men from Israel come together. And, and Gideon stands up, and he says, okay, who's ever... And again, we're talking about, they're going up against the Midianites where it says what? They look like locusts, man. They're everywhere, okay? And so he says, all right, who, who is ever afraid to fight, you can leave. 22,000 leave. It's like, let's not use that one again, Gideon, Okay? Let's not message that one out. 22,000 leave, but it was God's design. God begins to take this whole process through, through reduction because God wants the glory. And God wanted to demonstrate to man that relying upon Him, things will get done. Things will happen. And so, uh, through a course of other things, they reduced this army down to 300. 
So now you have Gideon that's going after an army that says in Judges 7.12, they were as thick as locusts. He's got 300 men that's going to go after them. In chapter 7, verses 19 and 22 of Judges, Gideon goes out. He reaches the edge of the camp and at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard, they blew their trumpets and broke their jars. They didn't even have, let's talk about unconventional warfare. They blew, they had trumpets and jars and candles and these other things. It's like, are you kidding me? But they took these things, they did exactly what God wanted them to do. And while each man held his position around the camp, the Midianites ran. They began to cry out as they fled. The Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Israelites didn't have to do a thing. God conquered the Midianites himself and delivered them. Here's, the, here's where we were going today, guys. Just within this context, within Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, God says, just like the Midianites. Remember this story back here? Remember what I did back here? I'm going to do something bigger than even that. And God lays out this concept that basically says, this is just a precursor. This is an example of how I'm going to bring victory to the future. This is just but a blip of what I'm getting ready to do. And so he says in verses 4 and 5, he says, a yoke that burdens them, a bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Now the Israelites might have heard that and said, well, he's referring to the Midianites. He's referring to the Assyrians or the Babylonians or whatever that was taking place during that time. But this is a much, much, much larger picture that God's referring to. This is a much bigger one. In fact, Ezekiel 33.10 says this, our offenses... And sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. What God is saying, that rod, that oppressor, is sin. And in this context, God is saying, I am sending something. I am sending someone. I am sending you a king that's going to break all of that once and for all. And he says, this is so much bigger. And just like the Midianite army, when it seems absolutely impossible, I'm going to make something happen. You see, sin works like the Midianite army. It surrounds us. It, it becomes over-encompassing. We look around us and it's like there's no way out. It's as if it just consumes us. It takes the things that God has given us pleasure in and makes them vile. It makes us run to the hills. It makes us hide in caves. It makes us shirk or, or shri- go off into embarrassment and sheer terror of God's wrath and there's literally nothing we can do about it we're not strong enough to defeat it we're not strong enough to fight it it attacks us on the internet it attacks us at school it attacks us at home it attacks us wherever we are we have this huge army like the Midianites that just encompasses us at some point and it just feels like we're being attacked from within and sin is even worse than the Midianites because we can't hide from it There's no place that we can go. It even comes into the cave of our hearts and our minds because according to Psalm 51.5, we're born in it. You see, the context of Midian's defeat is all important. When God says in this passage of Scripture, just like in Midian, this is where we perk our ears up to say, God's got a big, something's going to happen here, and there's a much bigger story that surrounds this. So here's the issue, guys. If you live this life that's happy with who you are, what you do, and what you have, and it's like nothing, you know, it's just is what it is, Christmas will be nothing more than a nice story about a baby being born. And for some of us, that's how we look at Christmas. In fact, if things get a little off-kelter, because this is what we do every year. These are the traditions that we observe. This is what we do. And if one of those little things come, come out of sync, we get really upset, don't we? We get angry. 
Because we're trying to control everything. That's what Christmas is to us. It's been reduced down to just this, this nice story about a baby being born. And, you know, the decorations and all that thing. All those things. We say to ourselves, huh, that's interesting. Now, what else can I get for Christmas? Give me something that I can eat. Give me something that I can watch. Give me something that I can play with. But if you recognize that you were born into slavery to sin, under the control of Satan, and needing delivery from that, from that enemy, Christmas becomes something completely different. Now we start sitting on the edges of our seat saying, I'm broken. I'm broken. We, 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 we sit on the edges of our seat saying, something's got to save me. I'm tired of living my life this way. I'm tired of not being able to, to, to work through some of these things. I'm tired of trying to manage things that I can't manage. And so we begin to sit on the edge of our seat to say, maybe this is it. Maybe this promise that was given, so this prophecy that was given so long ago is still real for me today. Maybe I can find hope and encouragement within this promise that says that a son will be giving and this son will establish his kingdom and he will reign forever. You see, that's what the Messiah is going to be like. The Savior is going to come. He's going to defeat the enemy in his grip just like God defeated the Midianites using Gideon and his army. And there's two other words that I want to focus on here uh, very briefly. But two words, wonderful counselor. I want, to, I want to add something to this because in some texts, in some scholar, scholars would say this. In some, there is a comma between those two. It's not so much wonderful counselor, but there's a little comma that separates them. And if there is a comma that separates them, it takes on a little bit of a different meaning. Wonderful. What does it mean when we say God is wonderful? Well, it means that He does wondrous things. It means that there are times that God moves and I can't explain it. It means there are times when God does things that God shows up in my life that I don't have the words to sit and articulate and explain specifically how God worked it out. The only thing I do know is, is that God is a huge God and God came into my life and He did a wondrous thing. God came into my life. He knew that I was dealing with a situation. He knew that I had something that I couldn't control, something that I couldn't manage. And God came in and He literally moved and He showed Himself. He demonstrated Himself and it's not the norm. And it is absolutely inexplicable. I can't explain what it is. But the one thing I do know, God is wonderful. Holy cow, is God wonderful. By the way, Jesus, some 30-some years later after He's born begins his inauguration of ministry. And one of the things that people said about his teaching, that it was different. He taught with authority. It wasn't like anything else that others, the way others had taught, but this person of Jesus, when he taught, there was power behind it. I wonder if they would say, there was this wondrous concept behind it. That when he taught, it was absolutely different. Wonderful, comma, Counselor. A lot of times we look at that word counselor and we say, well, it's something like, you know, we sit in and we get therapy. Well, it could kind of be that way, but counselor means that he's able to give, and it kind of goes along with this, but gives wise counsel. And in this particular context, it's like a kingdom-minded counsel, meaning that, that, he's, that he's part of the king's counsel. He gives wise counsel. 
Here's the other side of it is that when God gives us, when Jesus gives us wise counsel, it often looks like upside down living in our world, right? When we look at Matthew chapter 5 and we start reading the Sermon on the Mount and he lays out, he says, people that are part of my kingdom, people that are part of me, people that we could say are Christians, people that take on my identity are going to act much different. He begins to spell that out. He begins to lay and paint that picture out of what people look like. In fact, when someone offends you, you pray for them. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't come natural for me. If you offend me and you become my enemy, I want to kill you. I want to destroy you. I know it's hard to believe, isn't it? I'm not so sure there's a person in here that says, I just absolutely love praying for my enemies. It hurts. When someone does something to me that hurts me, it hurts. And God's saying, I want you to pray for that person. I want you to go to that person. I want you to spend time with that person. I want you to work this out. Wait a minute, God. Don't you mean that you want me to go over here and justify all of my thinking and rally people around me so that we can sabotage that person? Because I like that a little bit better. That feels, this feels better, kind of. No. I want you to pray for the person. I want you to engage in conversation with the person. I want you to reach out to the person. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, God lays things out. How we look at people. How we deal with people. That, that horizontal relationship. But it's upside down. It's like an oxymoron. Because in our culture, that's not how we're influenced. We're not influenced that way. We're not influenced by unconditional love. We're influenced by conditional love. If you don't do what I want, I'm going to give you a good old-fashioned ultimatum, right? If you don't do what I want, I'm going to reject you. How's that feel? Or if you don't do what I want, I'm going to guilt you into something. That's the type of world we live in. We don't live in this world where it's like, I'm going to love you to death. And Jesus says, that's not the world you live in. But in my world, that's what describes my people. And so here you have this wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, everlasting Father. God says, that's the person that's going to rule. In his kingdom, peace will find no end. There will be no end to, 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 to this peace. As I close with 2 Corinthians, I want to read a passage of Scripture. And I'm going to read, um, if you, uh, I'm going to read from the message. Because I really like the way Eugene Peterson articulates it in, uh, in, in the message. And, and I want you to follow, just listen to, what I have, just listen to how he articulates this. Uh, the, the words of the Apostle Paul. He says this, If you only look at us, you might well miss the brightness. We carry this precious message, capital M, this precious message around in the unadorned clay pots of our ordinary lives. That's to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. As it is, there's not much chance of that. You know for yourselves that we're not much to look at. We've been surrounded and battered by troubles, but we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do, but we know that God knows what to do. We've been spiritually terrorized but God hasn't left our side. Kind of heard that last week, didn't we? We've been thrown down, but we haven't broken. What they did to Jesus, they're doing to us. 
trial, torture, mockery, and murder. What Jesus did among them, He does in us. He lives. Our lives are a constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. While we're going through the worst, you're getting in on the best. We're not keeping this quiet, not on your life. Just like the psalmist who wrote, I believe it, so I said it. We say what we believe. And what we believe is that the one who raised up the Master Jesus will just as certainly raise us up with you, alive. Every detail works to your advantage and to God's glory. More and more grace. More and more people. More and more praise. So, we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside where God is making new life, not a day goes by without His unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times. The lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow, but the things we can't see now will last forever. You know, there are some of us sitting in here this morning that if we would stop and reflect, it feels as if the Midianites are pressing in around us. And it feels like that there's no hope. It feels like that that they're going to overcome us. It feels like that there is absolutely no way out of this, that there is no hope. But this promise that God said back in Isaiah says, just in the day of the just like the Midianites, I'm going to defeat all of that. You see, we live in the reality of that in a sense. Because we live in the, in the moment of the fact that Jesus Christ has been born, that He le- lived a perfect life, that He died, and that He rose from the grave. And we have, just like the Apostle Paul said, that is what we have living inside of us. And regardless of what it looks like on the outside, regardless of the things that's happening around us, regardless of when it looks like things are coming crushing down, regardless of the attacks that we endure, God is still alive, seated high on His throne, giving us that hope. I don't know where you are today on your spiritual journey. I don't know if if you need God to come into your life and pull you up and set your feet on the rock. Maybe you're celebrating in here today. Maybe, Maybe you can really just grab a hold of this because you look at this and you think, man, I was there. And and I still claim that and I still grab a hold of this and celebrate that. I don't I don't know where you are, but the one thing I do know for sure, for certain, is that God wants to encounter you right now, today. And don't mistake that you've arrived. Don't make the mistake that you've arrived. Because God wants to take each and every one of us deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And the way that happens, guys, is by surrendering ourselves to Him. Which means, God, I can't control these things. God, I can't manage this stuff in my life. God, I can't manage this over here that I may not like. God, I can't manage this that's happening. God, I can't manage what's happening to my daughter. I can't manage what's happening to my son or my spouse. I can't manage this news that I just got. God, I can't manage these things. And it feels like that I'm being overtaken. And God's saying, no, you're not. No, you're not. I'm in control. And just as I defeated the Midianites, I want to do the same in your life. 
but you've got to trust me. I'll be honest with you guys, and I'm speaking from experience. One of the hardest reasons, or one of the biggest reasons why we can't trust God is we can't be still long enough and be quiet. We're constantly on the move. We're constantly jabbering. We can't pull back and say, God, here I am. And I'm not moving until you move. It's uncomfortable. But the one thing I do know for certain too is that God wants to encounter you, that God wants to lead you through whatever may be pressing in you and on you. God wants to lead you through that. There is hope here this morning. And I think if we can just grab a hold of that this morning, if we would just pause and take a deep breath and reflect, this Christmas season is going to mean something so much different than maybe the way we've experienced Christmas in the past. Because now that child in the manger is big enough to take care of my problems. He's big enough to shoulder the government. He's big enough to change the world. He's big enough to be in control. He's big enough to make all things right. He's big enough to make this stuff that we're experiencing now take care of it once and for all. And I pray that that's how you worship God in your life now and here in the next few moments as we close with a song. I pray that you would just really lean into it and allow God to encounter you the way He wants to encounter you. Would you do that as we close with this last song?